Greetings. One must not get one's knickers in a twist. little about any monarch of England before Henry VII. So today, I'm joined by someone who describes himself as Edward III's biggest fan. Chris Riley is a historian and writer for the History Corner, the Historian's Magazine, and is an Instagram king of knowledge. So, firstly, hi Chris. Hi mate, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Would you like to introduce yourself? Um, This is also a golden opportunity to plug your writing, social media pages and all that jazz. Yeah, I'll always take an opportunity to do that. Um, Yeah, my name's Chris. Um, You can find me on Instagram at chrisreilly underscore. Um, I've been writing history like on a, let's call it a semi-professional level for about a year now. Um, but yeah, I, I co-founded um, the historycorner.org um, with some historian friends of mine who are all wicked. Um, I write on there, people can write on there. So if you have a topic you want to cover, send me a message, send me an email, etc., cetera. Um, and we can, we can discuss it. But yeah, I write for the History Corner, um, all sorts of topics covered. And we do game review, book reviews, film reviews, Anything history will cover it. Uh, I also um, write for um, another site, um, another wonderful set of Instagram historians. I hope that's not an insult to call people Instagram historians. I'd call myself one. Um, they're called InFocus History. Uh, InFocusHistory.co.uk is another wonderful website. Um, I've covered the Crusades for them on there. Um, so I'm going all the way through all of the major Crusades with them. Um, which is, I would say, a great series, and I would 100% recommend you reading them all. Um, but yeah, I um, that's me. That was probably the best intro I've ever had on a uh, collaboration podcast, so good job. You got everything in there. That's wicked. Taking um, all my boxes. <laughs> you are, definitely, definitely. So uh, Chris and I got chatting over uh, Instagram. Um, uh, we cover kind of different very different periods or have knowledge on very different periods of um, British uh, and European history. So I am anything from Henry the Seventh onwards till now and you are pre Henry the Seventh. So this match is a match made in heaven um, because I'm going to learn some stuff today all about Edward the Third. So um, I did a quick Google search on Edward the Fourth, uh, Edward the Third, sorry, and it was 
getting the Edwards wrong now. There's so many of them. So many. So many. All the Edwards. Um, Edward III, I did a quick Google search on, and all I know at the moment is he was king for 50 years. So I am going to quiz your knowledgeable brain on Edward III, and hopefully by the end of it I will be a bit more knowledgeable. Hope so. Hopefully, hopefully, um, hopefully, people listening to this as well. If you don't know anything about Edward the Third, at least if you know one thing after this, that would be uh, my job done, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. So, what sort of time period are we talking about when we talk about Edward the Third? Yeah. So, um, Edward was born in 1312 uh, at Windsor, uh, born at Windsor Castle, um, and he, he ruled and lived until 1377. So a fair chunk of the 14th century was, was Edward's century. Um, there was only a couple of years where the king wasn't called Edward um, for the 14th century, just Richard II at the end, uh, and then literally one year of Henry, Henry IV. But uh, yeah, he, so he, he lived wedged between the kind of the early Plantagenets of the late, late Norman invasion and um, the Wars of the Roses. Um, his, his rule and his very very unfortunate ending um and his his family basically caused the wars of the roses um but we will we will get to that bit i'm sure do we know much about um his childhood where he was born where he grew up etc yeah we know we know we know a fair a fair chunk uh, yeah he was born at windsor um but with with all royal babies kids families they didn't stay in one spot for very long he will have travelled all throughout England as a young prince and known as Edward of Windsor. Um, he, he was the eldest son of Edward II, uh, King Edward II, who was a pretty pants king. But again, we will, we'll, um, we'll go into a little bit more detail about him later. Uh, his mother was Isabella of France, a very, very important um, woman for Edward's story. Um, do you know the pretty nasty nickname that was given to Edward's mum? No, I know nothing. Please enlighten. So I would say quite unfairly, some people would probably say quite fairly, she was dubbed the She-Wolf of France. Okay. <laughs> mainly for being French and probably for being a woman. Two things that didn't usually go down well in medieval England, um, which is pretty, pretty pants. But uh, yeah, so he, he grew up in a, in a very French, very rich, very over-the-top household. And when I say household, I'm referring to the moving household that would have moved from the lowlands of Scotland throughout England, all down into Bordeaux, into Aquitaine, which was at this point still under English control. Um, but again, we're getting ahead of ourselves talking about Fran French England. But uh, yeah, he, as far as I can tell, he had a pretty happy upbringing. His dad was a pants king, but quite a nice man. So I can imagine he had quite a nice upbringing. The end of his childhood um, was awful. Uh, was absolutely awful because he was technically used as a pawn in the dethronement, um, disinheriting and probable murder of his own dad. So this is real life Game of Thrones stuff we've got going very, on here. Very, very Game of Thronesy. Um, essentially, he his his dad was a weak king. He didn't have the the support of his nobles, okay. um, and he the French. Um, King at the time was encroaching on his lands and went, look, I need you to pay homage to me. Edward II didn't want to leave England because of the constant unrest in the um, sort of mid-1320s. And he was like, I'll send my French wife, who is your sister, after all. 
um, Stuart's sister of the of the French king, um, Charles the Fourth, um, and take take young Edward with you as well. Take Prince Edward. So they, the two of them tootled off to France, had a wonderful chat with with the French nobility, and they she then met a, a kind of disgraced noble called uh, Roger Mortimer, who's uh, quite a it's quite a famous name but i don't know if everybody knows who roger mortimer is but it's one of those names that gets thrown out quite a lot um roger was a disgruntled noble and he planned with the then wife of the king um uh, to invade england with an army of with a french army to depose edward ii and put a puppet king in edward iii on the throne which they did um whether they were lovers or not i don't know a lot of people say they were. That's why she gets the she-wolf kind of um, nickname because she was she was an adulterer. She was French. She was a woman. All terrible things if you're a medieval king. Um, so yeah, they invaded. Call it an invasion. There wasn't really much invading. It was just they were there. Edward II was put in prison in Barclay Castle. And the kind of overall impression is he was he was murdered. He was probably smothered to death. Uh, there are some historians, I'm not one myself, that think he escaped and lived out his life as a hermit in Italy okay. um, and actually visited Edward once he was king. But I don't believe that necessarily happened. But Edward might have believed the hermit that did visit him in the 1330s was his dad. But Edward was unfortunately killed. And so, yeah, Edward was used as a pawn and he was only, you know, late teens at this point. Wow. Um, so his his... He had a pretty pretty rubbish end to his childhood, but he got his own back. He arrested Roger Mortimer with a bunch of his mates and had him executed as a traitor and took full control of the kingdom. So all's well that ends well. So Edward definitely got the last laugh there, 100%. I guess. 100%, yeah. Um, so it was quite a uh, precarious place to be king. Um, I suppose mm. you had to sort of look over your shoulder constantly, um, even with family members. Yeah, I mean, Edward had a really tough job because he, he, he was crowned king in 1327. Um, and by the 1330s, his position was very strong. He was a very popular like prince and king. He was, he was strong, he was powerful, he was a good war commander. And he needed two things to be secure. He needed a son and he needed a wife in reverse order. So he, he married um, Philippa of Hainon, Hay, Hainault, another horrible word to say, in 1328. Um, successful marriage yielded a son, uh, also called Edward, uh, known to history as the Black Prince, but we will talk about the Black Prince later. Um, so he had the two things he needed, and then he gained the support of the nobles, gave him the opportunity to rid him of Roger Mortimer, who was ruling essentially as king with terribly, absolutely terribly. He he lost a war with the Scots. He was vastly unpopular. He gave himself wealth and titles he didn't deserve. Um, he was made. He made himself the first Earl of March, which is virtually all of the border between England and Wales, all of those rich lands there. But yeah, so Edward Edward had a really tough job, but secured his position really, really quickly and really well. That's so interesting and so um, complex as well. I mean, yeah. we we see. Uh, Britain now is very firmly having its borders, etc. But mm. then I guess it was kind of all up for grabs. Very fluid, a very fluid pe uh, period of history, which I think in, in England anyway, we're taught it very linearly and very Edward I, then Edward II, then Edward III. But it wasn't that simple. It really wasn't that simple. And 
hopefully I haven't complicated it too much, but it really is complicated. And no. it gets even more complicated when you add France in the mix. But we'll, uh, we'll cross that bridge in a Absolutely. minute. Absolutely. I just wanted to make a link there. So obviously when Edward III was born and he was prince, he was Edward Windsor, um, mm-hmm. as is our queen at the moment. She is a Windsor as well. And that's... They've obviously had different names in between that time period, but it's it's sort of come full circle. It yeah, seems. which which is a nice link that I've never really made. Obviously, I am self-titled Edward the Third's number one fan, and <laughs> yeah, he was he was Edward of Windsor as a child, as his dad was Edward of Carnarvon. He was born at Carnarvon Castle, and he is the first English, in quotation marks, uh, Prince of Wales. Okay, um, Carnarvon was... Castle, if no one has been, is beautiful, and mm. I I would suggest they do go. It is wonderful. Um, But that's Edward of Carnarvon and Edward II is a whole different episode, which we will, uh, (laughs) I'm sure we'll get to at some point. (laughs) Absolutely. So you've you've touched a bit on um, his manliness, I guess. So do we know more about what he looked like, um, what colour hair he had, sort of his stature? Um, Do we have any... I mean, we, we know a little bit, but it's usually very general... So you'll always hear kings as tall and handsome and queens as beautiful and fair. Obviously, not everybody was that. There's probably some ugly queens and some, like me, very short, (laughs) gremlin-like kings. Um, But Edward was probably tall, probably stocky. He had long, kind of gingery red, orange, like, fair hair and a beard. Um... The one portrait that I think you used for the promo for this episode is the one that if you Google Edward III, you will always see with the white forked beard looking like uh, Dumbledore a little bit. Um, That's kind of the only, not the only image, that's the most probable accurate image of Edward III. But he was, that image was made centuries after he died, but it's very similar to his funeral effigy, um, which is on his tomb. Um, so that's the best guess we have of Edward III. Yeah, and so that was obviously painted a long time after he was alive and um, sort of based on his older years, I would say. Yeah. So that obviously not when he had the the the, the gingery sort of hair, which I, I'm, I'm very up for that Celtic look. I think it's great. Um, I would very much like to have it myself. My, um, my family have got... Um, that Celtic gene in them, but it skipped me, so I don't have it. I've got very dark <laughs> hair, um, very slowly turning into a Victorian. But um, I digress. Anyway, this isn't about me. This is about <laughs> Edward the Third. So, um, so we kind of roughly know what he looks like. Um, mm. So, going on from that, so at this sort of period of time, was the succession hereditary, or was it? kind of like the real Game of Thrones, like I mentioned earlier. I mean, for, for the most part, especially in England and France and most European kingdoms at the time, it was hereditary. Uh, obviously, we're talking about Edward III and his dad, Edward II, and his dad was Edward I. There was never a... There was the odd dispute um, going back to, let's say, um, there was a little bit when Richard I, or Richard the Lionheart, died. Um some people wanted his nephew, um, who could have been, because kind of in line, but then they gave it to his brother John, the evil King John. Um, and then before that, there was a little bit of a dispute between um, the 
Henry the First's legitimate daughter, because we'll we'll we we'll we'll touch on illegitimacy in a minute. Um, yeah, his his legitimate daughter, who is the emperor, the Holy Roman Empress uh, Matilda, she was technically after her brother William died on the White Ship disaster. She was technically the eldest and the most senior, but she was a woman. So her cousin, Stephen of Blois, who was still related to the royal family, etc., etc., but very much an outsider, he disputed the throne. There was a whole civil war called the Anarchy. But by the time of Edward III, it was very simple. It was eldest son inherits. Any other sons would inherit less, lesser titles, um, but yeah, it was all neat and tidy at this point. So there was almost a system sort of yeah. going on that we would recognise, I guess, today. Yeah, absolutely. It's virtually unchanged. The only thing that has changed now is it's not the eldest son that automatically inherits, it's the oldest child, yes. which I think changed fairly recently. Yes, yeah, not that long ago, which I feel is fair. Because um, Queen, Queen Victoria's firstborn was a daughter who was also called Victoria, um, and she never inherited the throne. So we're talking just less than 100 years ago that that mm. changed. So Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably not going to come into effect for a several generations, because obviously we've got a king in the waiting, we've got another king in the waiting. And, and then we've got, one. A, yeah. we've got three <laughs> generations of kings, I think, just waiting. Yes, um, But still, it's, it's a move in the right direction. Even if you don't like the royal family, it's a rule and move in the right direction. But yeah, a very, a very similar system to what we would recognise today. Absolutely. So I mentioned a little bit earlier that I knew... Well, I knew. I googled uh, Edward and we uh, the Hundred Year War came up. So can you just explain to me and the listeners uh, what the Hundred Year War was, who it involved, why it started and why it went on for so long? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's To me, it's one of the most important and most influential European conflicts of all time. It basically shaped the relationship between uh, England, Scotland and France. The two main parties were England and France. Scotland definitely played their part in, for lack of a better word, irritating the English with their um, the old alliance um, with, with France. It's one of the oldest um, alliances and longest alliances that ever, ever happened between Scotland and France. Um, but yeah, it's, it was neither 100 years long or a continuous war. It was 116 years and it was split into phases. Um, we did well in some, the French did well in others, and ultimately the French won. Um, it started in around 1337, so just as Edward is becoming king, and it ended in 1453, um, way, way, way in the future with Henry VI, um, who was an absolutely terrible king. Um, again, a completely different topic for another day. Wow. Okay, so 116 years, not 100 years, and intermittent not full on yeah yeah and it, it it's it's got some of the famous english victories that we uh, as a nation like to romanticize um maybe um i've i've written on two of them i've written on agincourt which was in 1415 obviously henry v and uh, more recently uh, cressy um which is slap bang in the middle of edward iii and it's one of the uh, cornerstone battles of um, the Hundred Years' War, um, where him and his son, the Black Prince, 
who I we will I will definitely bring up again later because he is so important to the story. Um, yeah, they absolutely hammered the French with with longbows, and I think if it wasn't for Cressy, we wouldn't have Agincourt. We wouldn't have the the Shakespearean, um, you know, once more into the breach. Um, we wouldn't have any of that if it wasn't for the Battle of Cressy. But we wouldn't have any of that if it wasn't for the Battle um, of Halidon Hill, which was fought again with Edward III against the Scots just before the Hundred Years' War. Um, which is another thing I've covered recently on my website, if you'd like to check out. Um, <laughs> nice plug and, there, I like it. Oh, yeah. No, plug Se- away, plug away. Seamless, seamless plugging. I love it. I'm like Professional. a plumber. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. But uh, um, yeah, there, it's, it's, a, it's a domino effect during the Hundred Years' War of things, things happening and things changing and borders moving and changing and people dying and living and being captured. And it's such a wonderful insane story um, that goes for well over 100 years and really it started a little bit before that as well but but yeah and it was and battles in them days it wasn't sort of remote as we would sort of recognize world war Two, where we're very much shielded with uh with planes and 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 um mm. all that kind of stuff it was it was face to face full-on yeah. let's get involved and you're going to look potentially the person in the eye that murders you absolutely um, yeah that to me that's insane um yeah i mean all war is insane but um it's it's incredible that these these men were so willing to lay down their lives for 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 king and country as you say mm. um yeah i mean the hundred years war very much started or at least gave a general shape to the idea of being english as opposed to being a a semi-French because for let's get this straight England was very French as in a ten, from a from a uh, upper upper crust point of view Edward III spoke French as his first language he did speak English and he did introduce English into the law system but we'll get onto that at the end courts were very French they were lovely and perfumey and all very French and lovely and the lower order spoke English and they were just sound but yeah, so it, but it, the Hundred Years' War definitely separated the two kingdoms, and it it gave the uh, sense of Englishness that was not necessarily there before. Um, obviously, before the conquest, you were probably from Wessex or Mercia or Northumbria. Okay, you, it was very similar to how America probably was before the Civil War. You were from Maryland or Kentucky or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. After the conquest, you were we were English, but it was very much a French Norman dominated society. And by Edward III's time, because of the Hundred Years' War, likely, um the idea of being English was definitely more important. Okay, so in um so obviously we have the the poignant battles um that the English sort of claim to have won in this 116 year war um so will do the french do the same from the other side will they look at the battles that they um have won possibly even to this day and be like well yeah well we won that um yeah, and absolutely. sort of erase the the ones that you didn't well i i think we do a very very poor job in this country of talking about our losses we are rubbish at saying like i, I not many people, me, me included, can't really name many battles we lost. And I'm not, we're not great. We're not amazing. We're not like the all-powerful, you know, English. We, we lost a f- lot mm-hmm. in the Hundred Years' War. We ultimately lost the Hundred Years' War. Um, Joan of Arc is crucial in, in the loss. Um, the Siege of Orléans was a massive 
loss for the English. Um, the Battle of Castillon was the ultimate loss that lost the English the Hundred Years' War, where cannon was... We were so behind. We relied so much on the longbow because of the battles of Cressy, Poitiers, Agincourt. They were all big battles, just, just decimating massive French armies with longbows. Yeah. The French got sick of it, and, and they were like, screw it, cannons. And cannons will always be bows. Bows and arrows of cannons will decimate lines as they did. Um, and yeah, so we are we do a pretty pants job of talking about the losses. Because up until a couple of years ago, I was kind of convinced we won the Hundred Years' War, but we didn't. We definitely didn't. Well, I'm we, glad... we, there's no Englishman sat on the French throne. I'm glad that you are here to educate me because I literally know nothing about that period of time. However, I can fast forward to other battles that or, or wars that um, are sort of portrayed as mm. um, a British win or a UK win or an English win or, wh- or whatever umbrella you sit under. Um, we fast forward to World War Two. You hear... You hear the saying a lot. Well, the the British and the Americans won the war. Um, mm. Very, very much in my mind d- did did not without help. If we didn't have any help or any, mm. I say we as is in the British, not as in me. I was not there. <laughs> um, uh, I'm only in my thirties. I'm not that old yet. Um, yeah. Uh, and and we always we always get the um, the lines that the the, the British liberated the the death camps etc. It was actually the Soviets, mm. the Russians the, that did that. Um, the Soviets won the Second World War. Absolutely, down the most important faction, absolutely. let's say, in in the war. But yeah, the, the Hundred Years' War is is no exception. Like for me, the battles that I know in depth about are Cressy, Agincourt. Battle of Sluis, which is a, the naval battle that kind of kicked off the Hundred Years' War in 1340, where, again, English longbowmen were able to decimate the French fleet that was just sat in uh, anchor. It was all lined up neatly. Um, and so many French died that the kind of the saying goes that the fish uh, in the channel speak French because there's <laughs> so many French bodies in, in under the under the English Channel, which is part of the reason we call it the English Channel, because the Battle of Sluis was so... So, so, des, de, um, what's the word? So, um, complete. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I don't know if every country does it. I'm assuming every country does it. But yeah, we love to talk about the victories, um, more so than the losses. But they're just as important for shaping history. That's really interesting about the, um, English Channel sort of getting that name, um, from that battle. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, and if there are any French listeners, I'm more than happy to be corrected on anything I say, but I'm pretty sure it's referred to as the English Channel in France, which just shows how, for, the, for, for context, the whole Hundred Years' War period, the, the English Channel was controlled by the English. There was never a day where the French Navy controlled it. So we were able to ferry men over constantly um, to, till our hearts you know, were content. There was never, after the Battle of Slois, there was never a chance. Oh, we might not make it over to Normandy because of the because uh, of risk of a French fleet. Um, so it was it was so definite that it's, it's part of the reason we call it the English Channel. Like I said, I'm happy to be corrected if they do not call it that in France. I I find that really interesting. I mean that that body of water that separates us between um, mainland Europe um, seems 
to have sort of stemmed from from that period of time. If you're if you're saying that um, there was a lot of uh, French uh, nobility and royalty sort of intermixing and 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 and, and jumping from one continent and country to the next, mm. um, that body of water was was. I mean, it's only thirty miles between us and France. It's not far. Yeah. Um, and yet now it's very symbolic of how separate we are. Mm. Um, without getting too modern politics, but that 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 very small margin is is huge. I mean, it, it's it's further to to some parts in um, the Scottish Islands. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to to remember that. Probably up until the the 14th century, probably so around around the time we're discussing today, the channel, because there was so much English-held territory in France, obviously it was hampered over time and it was degraded over time and we'll get on to why, why the Hundred Years War started. Um, but it was, it was a highway. It wasn't a border. It was a, it was a crossing between two parts of the same world. Yeah. Um, and I think we, as a, as a, as a nation, as a, as a people, we like to see ourselves, or some people certainly do, like to see ourselves as very separate from Europe. When realistically, for our whole history, we have been connected in some way, shape, or form mm. with 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 Europe, especially with France. France Absolutely. and England are two in the same. We come from the same pot. I mean, English as a language um, developed later on from a lot of older languages. So from from the French, from um, old German, um, mm. English is is quite a late runner in the in the form of of the way that we communicate. So, um, I mean, I'm I'm very much pro European. Um, I, I don't hide that fact, um, and I love the fact that we're the borders don't necessarily need to be there, and we're all very much interconnected. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I'm very very. It's a horrible sentence to say because of the connotations, but I'm very proud to be British, but I'm also super proud to be part of Europe. And I wish that was the uh, the collective idea. Obviously, everybody wishes their ideas were what everybody thought, but I, it's just <laughs> a lot nicer if you're, you know, from every... I'm not saying I'm French or German, but we're all European. We're all from... We all come from the same place, and it's so much nicer when, when you are. But the Hundred Years' War is part of the reason we have this idea of Englishness being separate from, from the French, which, like I said, at this point, is still very, very mangled up and intertwined. Like the whole uh, duchy of, of Aquitaine, so Western France around uh, Bordeaux, was English-held territory. Previously, Normandy and Anjou and Maine and, and Brittany were kind of technically in there, but they were all part of the English realm, you know, only 300 years before Edward III, England was a fiefdom of a Norman duke. A French Viking who spoke French was the king of England that spoke Anglo-Saxon. But the reason we have words like cul-de-sac is because of the French invasion of culture and language and peoples. That is a, do you know what? I'm learning so much today. That's really interesting. Um, and I suppose there's a lot of, of, of words that we use. As I said, our yeah. language comes from, from, from France. Everywhere. And, yeah, absolutely. And, and there's, there's very much still French words and, and, and places and, and, and towns and stuff that grew up around mm. 
those people that were not British, or what we understand the reason to be we, British. The reason we say beef for cow, for, for, for beef, as in meat, is because of the French word boeuf, which means cow. So the French, the, no, the Normans came over, and they didn't really know what the animal was that they ate, so it was like, well, this is, this is boeuf, this is beef. And we were like, nah, it's a cow. And they were like, cool, we'll just decide. Well, essentially, we'll have the animal as a cow and the food as beef. Same with mutton for sheep. Uh, mutton is French, or old middle French at least, for, for sheep. Um, hence why we have food, mutton, and animal sheep. Um, and we have so many Scandinavian words as well, not to digress too far. but No, digress away. This is really interesting. <laughs> place names and words that end in like ing tend to be... Scandinavian, the obvious word is Viking, um, but a lot of places are Scandinavian, a lot of words are Scandinavian. Um, smorgasbord, which apparently is the only um, one of the words we use that's still like really Swedish. It's like eating on a boat outside, but there is no English word for that. Um, not that you eat on a boat outside very often, but if it is, it's a smorgasbord. Um, but yeah, so we are a melting pot of European cultures, and it's great. I yeah, you've summed that up brilliantly. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, we've talked a little bit about um, how Edward was uh, as a child, but sort of what 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 kind of his characteristics and his personality like? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's something that amateur historians or people that aren't necessarily super excited about history kind of gloss over personalities which is quite strange um but from what we can tell edward was the kind of picture of chivalry chivalry was super important at this time it was being the noble knight it was was so crucial to a man's standing um so he was he was strong he was warlike he was a hunter a hawker he he loved the the noble arts the noble sports let's say um, it was all about being the most chival- chivalric, most uh, like treating women kindly and treating men with respect, but killing them. It was all very much that kind of period. Um, and he was the, the picture of chivalry. So, uh, And his son, who, again, I'm going to bring up again and again and again, because he's a, an incredibly interesting and important character, Edward, Prince Edward, um, another Edward, uh, we'll call him the Black Prince from now on, uh, which is a wonderful nickname. Um, he, he, We think he gets it from the black armour he used to wear, okay. which is really cool. Um, a good portrayal of the Black Prince is in A Knight's Tale. Um, if anybody, I'm sure you've seen A Knight's Tale, a wonderful film if you haven't. Um, I'm going to confess right now I've not seen it, but I'm going to add wow. it to my list. I know. It's very, very good. <laughs> Essentially, the Prince of Wales in that film is the Black Prince. Um, okay. he's, um, but him and his father were two of the greatest knights that ever lived um, essentially they were both, they were two in the same they were very very similar people And uh, but yeah we, we know a little bit about Edward III, uh, later historians kind of peg him as a warmongering adventurer that bled England dry I disagree, I think that's adding today's morals or later morals to a, to a 14th century man and I don't think it's very fair he did exactly what his job was to do, which was to protect his borders and continue to put pressure on people like France and Scotland who were doing their own thing as well. So I think he was, I, I try and stay away from the kind of great man syndrome, but Edward III and his son, the Black Prince, are two of the 
greatest men of their time, in my opinion, to ever live. There we go. You've heard it here first. Right, so another question I wanted to know, because obviously we're talking about um, a period of time that was so long ago. Um, Mm. Are there any historical buildings or sites in England that Edward III would recognise? Yes and no. I think the main one he would definitely recognise is the Tower of London. The vast majority of the current tower, so the actual White Tower and most of the, the walls and the extra bits, were built before Edward was born. Most, obviously, most famously started by William the Conqueror back in the 11th century, but his great-grandfather, Henry the Th- Henry III, um, and his granddad, Edward I, uh, Edward Longshanks, because he had long legs, um, <laughs> built... <laughs> great nickname. Um, built a lot of what we see today. So he would definitely recognise that. Um, he was born at the original Windsor Castle, which is definitely not what stands today. Um, but something that he... He founded was the Order of the Garter, which is still around today. And his his base of operations for the Order of the Garter was at uh, Windsor Castle at the um, at St George's Chapel, which I do believe is still still there. I don't know if it's in its current state, um, uh, well, the the 14th century state, but it's uh, yeah. So, so the Order of the Garter. Do you want to explain a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, like I said, it's still it's still uh, around today, and it's the highest order of knighthood in the British Empire. British Empire, bloody hell, that's a throwback. The, uh, the British. <laughs> We're not in the Victorian times now. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a chivalric order of knights, um, and it basically kickstarted all of the chivalric orders around Europe. So there was the Garter is not a Garter that. Um, a, person would maybe wear around the the thigh i guess yeah it wasn't that it was a belt and if you look at the sigil for the order of the garter and the current um royal uh, coat of arms so the queen elizabeth ii's coat of arms it's surrounded by a blue belt uh, and that is the that is the garter um that the queen is the of she is the head of the order of the garter and it's now it's now given as more of a, a ceremonial kind of oh you're a Sound guy, you're an order of the knights of the order of the garter. Um, but at the at the time, it was it was um, a bit of a boys' club. I mean, everything in medieval England was a boys' club, but it was <laughs> it... definitely an actual actual boys' club because it could only be a, a guy to be in it. But it was for the 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 knights of the realm, regardless of stature. So regardless of who you were or where you came from, obviously you pretty much had to be a noble anyway. There was no. Um, Joe from down the street in the, as a knight of the Order of the Garter, but it was for valour, for bravery. It was set up after the Battle of Cressy. Okay. Um, and it was set up at probably the most incredibly um, apocalyptic time in history during the Black Death, which is another massive part of Edward's reign. He, he went through the Black Death. Okay, so we need to we need to talk about the Black Death because we talk about obviously we are currently going through a uh, a pandemic. Um, yep. Where where are we looking at the Black Death? Where does it come from? Kind of what what has it done to people? How does it present itself? So ironically, there are quite a lot of similarities between the current uh, coronavirus pandemic and the Black Death. Um, try, I'm not going to try and make too many parallels because it's a, a 800-year-old. Um, yeah, and, and on a scale that we will hopefully never, ever see again. But it, the, the, the origins of the Black Death are quite 
not mysterious. We just don't know. We think it came ironically out of China. Um, it came out of kind of Mongolia and places like that. And it traveled slowly over the late 13th century, so the 1290s, early 1300s, over into Eastern Europe. And um, it then eventually traveled, it then it started to really pick up in the 1340s um, once some ships escaped from a siege in Eastern Europe. It landed in Italy. And in doing so, they put the plague, it was carried by um, by rats on fleas, as we all know, just like the Great Plague of, of, the, of the 1660s. Um, it was carried by rats with fleas. It got into Italy, into Spain, into like Constantinople, and it absolutely ravished, ravaged through, through like Southern Europe England was sound for a while, and then a ship from Bordeaux landed in the south of England, and then it was like 1348, summer of 1348, it uh, swept through England. And one of the kind of funny stories is the Scots with the Black Death. So they, in the, the 1348 and 1349, were, were an absolute write-off for England. At least, up to 60% of the population died. It's, it's that kind wow. of scale that we will hopefully never, ever, ever see. Um, Edward III's daughter, Joan, died in Bordeaux of the plague. She was on her way to Spain, and she unfortunately died. But the Scots saw this as a, as like a divine punishment for the English. Like, ah, look at you, England, plague, sucks to be you, and invaded Northern England. And then by invading Northern England, they then got the plague. Um, so, yeah, the shoe's on the other foot now, Scotland. But it was an absolute tragedy, and it's one of the biggest events in human history in a way it's the, it's one of the greatest disasters in human history up to and this is definitely the the upper estimate but up to 200 million deaths because of the black death in the space of about five years that is huge numbers yeah absolutely but huge. edward for edward it was important to keep the government running he formed the order of the garter he he carried on kind of business as usual, even though at some points, on some days in London alone, 200 deaths a day, which, if you compare that to what we're going through at the moment, is terrifying. Absolutely. And, but it isn't all bad, which sounds really strange when you're talking about 3 million deaths in England alone, because after the Black Death, so, so the, the, the 1350s, it, there was this massive population that didn't exist anymore. Most of the most of the land was free, and it allowed people to kind of get freed from servitude because slavery had been abolished in England at this point. But serfdom was very real, and serfdom is, for lack of a better, it's it's like slavery light. It's not much better than being a slave. You were tied to the land, and you worked it until you died. That was it. But after the Black Death, there was this massive gap in the population and the peasantry, the lower orders, were able to exploit it in a, in a great way. They got fairer wages and more land, but then it kind of got worse again with Richard II and the peasants. Um, but uh, again, another episode for another day. I'm digressing again. Um, but yeah, so the Black Death was slap bang in the middle of Edward's reign. Slap bang in the middle of the of the Hundred Years' War, and the Order of the Garter was kind of formed as 
kind of probably a feel good like it sucks let's let's have a party where we wear blue belts it sounds like he was a busy man or there was a lot going on um in his in his reign but i mean mm. going back to where you said it's it's not all bad i mean i guess sort of obviously deaths are, are, are terrible and terrible on that scale but actually sort of breaking away from that control of 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 you are sort of stuck to the land that you are stuck to my family or, or etc mm. and 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 to be able to start again probably wasn't a bad thing for for everyone yeah it really was a cultural reset absolutely like it for those that survived and it's a horrible it's a horrible kind of car thing to discuss but for those that survived it was it was very on the on the on the whole anyway it was it was it was a good thing but so many lives lost because they had no idea what to do. Ironically, they did do regional lockdowns. <laughs> Maybe that's where it's come yeah. from. Who knows? Uh, Maybe I mean, we've we, been yeah. looking back. Um, the, the, the ideas for shutting down towns that were infected and things like that, it's very, very similar to what hap- what's happening right now in, in England. Mm. Um, it also didn't work then. Um, but yeah. So, um, sort of down my neck of the woods, they've been building um, a a new underground line that goes underneath London and a lot of the south um, called mm. the Elizabeth Line. And this has been going on for a while now. And they have uncovered um, quite a few plague pits whilst they've been mm. they've been digging, etc. And the 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 vast amounts of bodies. It's insane. There is, it yeah, absolutely, and and in this modern metropolis that I live very close to, you're never that far away from from these things that were happening in the reign of Edward the Third. Yeah, um, obviously London in the reign of Edward the Third was the obviously the capital of England. It was the one of the biggest trade ports in Europe. It was it was the population centre. Uh, really, it wasn't obviously what it looks like today. A lot of it was was fields and farmland, and uh, a lot of it was centred around um, the Tower of London and around that area, which you'll know a lot more than me. Um, but yeah, London was absolutely devastated, as all of Europe was, except Poland for some real, some weird reason. I don't know how Poland escaped the Black Death, but um, <laughs> a secret they're never going to let out. Yeah, um, <laughs> if you look at any like plague maps for lack of a better word i don't think they're called plague maps but maps of sort of where the plague went where the black death went there's just a circle around warsaw and it's like ah well done boys and girls whatever you did it worked but um but yeah devastating absolutely devastating. how did the black death present itself because there is bubonic bubonic (laughs) it's different isn't it yeah um so the um, not to go all medical because I really don't know anything about it. It's the the actual plague was Yersinia pestis, which is still around today. And I actually think somebody got the plague this year in Mongolia. He survived because it's completely treatable now. Um, but it is bubonic. It is the bubonic plague. So the the horrible pus filled sacks of of pus and blood and all sorts of horribleness on the lymph nodes are what you got if you had the Black Death. It was called the Black Death because the colour of the bubos was black. So, But also the colour black was synonymous with death and with bad. 
And it was obviously, it wasn't, there was no medical reason. They had no idea what was causing this. They had no idea it was the fleas, no idea that rats carried the fleas. It was, it was from God. It was, it was holy punishment for sin and all of these things that obviously it, it wasn't. It was a completely medical illness that could have been fixed with pretty basic, I say pretty basic, I say basic for today, a vaccine that exists now can get rid of it and you're sound you can you can have the plague now and it's a completely reasonable thing to get if you're in say madagascar or mongolia um but yeah they they believed it was divine punishment from god and the only way to relieve yourself or protect yourself was to pray and to publicly um like whip yourself and people would go around in bands shirtless like whipping themselves on the back like for their sins and in in doing this they spread the plague because they would go from village to village being like pray do a bit of praying get rid of your sins be a good christian like oh i'll touch you on your shoulder mate oh how you doing man i hope you're all right give you the plague no worries so overall a bit of a shit show it sounds terrifying absolutely terrifying and if you're in a um a culture and a world that is very um much beholden to to god and religion um Mm. I suppose there was there was no other there was no other way of thinking than than thinking actually no. we're being we're being punished for something that we've mm. done so um we will punish ourselves so it doesn't continue yeah. but um it 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 sounds absolutely absurd to modern ears um but even until I, I... very r- relatively recent times religion and 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 culture played a huge part in the way mm. that that people believed that they could treat illnesses, etc. Um, yeah, um, it's it's central to a medieval life. Um, it can't be understated how important the church was. Whether it was everybody was incredibly religious, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it was more of a second arm of government in a sense that the church was. A, an influence over every aspect of life. And throughout English history, as we know with the Reformation and the break from Rome, arguments between popes and kings and barons and archbishops, you know, it, they erupted and they caused uh, terrible things and great, great things. And, you know, t- um, Thomas Beckett, the famous archbishop that was murdered accidentally, some would say, by Henry II, it's such a it's such an important part of of medieval life because that was it that was your you know the alpha and the omega was religion it was what you from 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 birth to death every part of your life was somehow influenced by religion absolutely and you in in the in the uk in england you don't have to go that far to see evidence of of these old churches or worship sites they're everywhere in every single mm. tiny village or hamlet or um place that has less than than five six houses sometimes there is a ginormous church or a ruin mm. of a church that was around in the medieval times yeah i mean paris churches were the center of community um and that was probably the case up until what let's say 150 years ago absolutely uh, like it's it's so important to so many people throughout history 
Yeah, so pre, pre-Renaissance Europe was, was as religious as it gets. Um, since the fall of the Roman Empire, not to digress so far away. Um, but yeah, so religion was important to Edwards. It was important to his court. It was important to his kingdom. And um, that shows in pretty much everything he does. Um, the Order of the Garter was, it wasn't a religious organization, but it, it was for St. George. Uh, the idea of, of England and St. George and the patron saint. St. George was one of many saints. Um, St. Thomas Becket, uh, St. Edward the Confessor. These are some English saints. So we, as, as a Protestant nation, we don't really have saints anymore. Um, but everything was, everything was based around religion. So going back to the Black Prince, you told me briefly about his importance in this era of time. Mm. Do you just want to expand on, on him? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Black Prince, or Edward, um, Prince Edward, was the, um, the eldest son of Edward III, born in 1330, so just um, basically the, the final piece of the puzzle to secure his throne. Um, Edward was given uh, power and control over like Chester and the Earldom of Chester from like day one. Um, he was he was brought up to be Edward the Fourth. He unfortunately never became Edward the Fourth. There was another guy that was Edward the Fourth, um, and he is for me one of the greatest tragedies in history because he was at the age of sixteen. He fought at the Battle of Cressy. He was instrumental in the victory at Cressy. Um, that's where the Battle of Cressy and the Black Prince is the reason that the Prince of Wales, because he was Prince of Wales as well, um, the reason the Prince of Wales has the three ostrich feathers as his uh, like symbol, um, because at the Battle of Cressy, um, one of the French commanders um, was not French. Um, he was the blind king of Bohemia, uh, John of Bohemia. He was legit blind. Um, he during the battle he was uh, lashed to his horse. And with his most loyal chivalric friends, charged directly at the Black Prince's line. So this kid, he's a 16-year-old kid, and he's got hundreds of of knights charging at him. Um, he was able to he was able to survive. Obviously, he he wins. He, we win the battle, um, and Cressy's a massive victory for the English. Um, where famously, when Ed, the Black Prince's standard falls, and Edward III, who's commanding the censor, says they say, look. Your son might be dead. What do you want to do? Do you want to send like help? And he was like, and famously he says, "Let the boy earn his spurs," um, wow. which is it's a testament to both Edward the Third's sheer determination to just we're winning this. How how we're going to win it? This is how we're going to do it in in the most chivalric way possible. And my son will earn his titles now at sixteen. Um, yeah, so he, he doesn't die, obviously. He, he fights back against the blind king of Bohemia. He, the, the, king, the blind king is killed. And he, Ed, the Black Prince is so moved by um, John's just pure chivalric act of, I would probably call it stupidity, of charging just headlong at the English lines and doing quite well, even though he couldn't see. Um, he, he kind of cries at his, at his corpse and he takes the three ostrich feathers off his off his helmet and says, "From this moment onwards, um, I will I will carry this as my own uh, like standard." Um, and also the um, I don't know the German, and I always pronounce it wrong. But the the um, under the the kind of um, 
saying of the Black Prince, uh, I serve, it's like Ich Din or something like that. That is also the, what the Black Prince took from John of Bohemia. So everything we have, so everything that Prince Charles currently uses, really, can trace its roots to the Battle of Cressy and the Black Prince. Um, but he was, he was an astounding prince, an astounding knight. He wasn't the greatest politician. Uh, his, his dad, Edward III, put him in charge of most of his, the French lands. He was basically like Prince of Aquitaine um, in the sort of 1350s and 60s. Um, he fought at the Battle of Poitiers, which is another English victory against the French, where again they beat a much larger French force. They had the uh, then King uh, John of France, John II, was captured uh, and sent to England. Um, Edward the Black Prince um, treated him really well and he was very chivalric again. Um, so he was sent as like a gift to his dad, who obviously thought that, that was great. You captured the bloody French king. Nice one, mate. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. He then, yeah. He, he then, through the 1360s and 70s, he, he fought a very not so successful war in Spain, um, putting the um, kind of a succession crisis in, in, in Castile, um, which basically bankrupted him and also, in a way, killed him. In, in the 1370s, he became very ill. Uh, he got uh, dysentery in Spain. Um, and it plagued him for the rest of his life, and he became very, very weak, very ill. And unfortunately, in 1976, he succumbed to dysentery and died a year before his father did. Um, and he would have made a fine king, I think. He left his son, Richard, um, who would eventually become Richard II. Um, he left him a child, never really le- knowing his dad, no one to learn from which led to, led to so many problems. And ultimately, the Black Prince's death caused the Hundred, not the hundred Years' War, um, caused the Wars of the Roses because his death kind of ended the Plantagenet line because Richard II was, yeah, he was a Plantagenet king. But after that, he was usurped by the Lancastrians, uh, who were then usurped by the Yorkists and so forth and such which. Um, and it all starts because the Black Prince left in charge of government, essentially, his his younger brother, John of Gaunt, um, who was a real bastard, to be honest, because he undid so much of what Edward III and the Black Prince had done in, in, in France and in England. And he was a terrible governor and he was a bit of a tyrant. Um, and his son, Henry of Bolingbroke, became Henry IV. But, uh, but yeah, so th- for me, the Black Prince is arguably the, the greatest king to ever wear the crown. And for me, it's a tragedy that he died. It just shows how volatile um, the situation was, not only back then, but events to this day. You look at, um, you have a line of succession, the the, the, the heir and the spare, as they say, but mm. Um, mm. different events or tragedies quite easily change the line. Um, and and yeah. we, we know that from all... all all throughout British history, um, even as as far back as oh, sorry, even as, as as near to the the Queen's uncle who was who was due to be king who abdicated. Yeah, she would never have been queen. Um, no, it's um, it's fascinating. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, talking of, of of family members, we spoke briefly before we went on air about a William that exploded. Would you like to yes. tell me a bit more about this William? I would love to. 
So the William is William the Conqueror, so probably the most famous William ever, um, or William the Bastard if you don't like him, like me. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was he. So he he ruled England from 1066, Battle of Hastings. We all know that bit. Uh, he ruled until 1087, um, where as a rather fat um, old man, he fell onto the pommel which I think it's called a pommel, the bit on the front of the saddle. He fell into the front of his saddle and it basically crushed his internal organs. Uh, he died a very painful, slow death where his body was then looted. His, the room in which he died was looted. Um, really sad, actually, even though I'm never, I'm never going to pretend I'm the biggest William the Conqueror fan because um, he was a pretty awful king to the Northerners. But he, yeah, so he was, he was completely ransacked. And then as they were trying to put his body into the much too small sarcophagus, um, they pushed a little bit too hard and William popped, spraying his insides over all the mourners. Everyone that was there got a little bit of William to take home, I guess. And wow. yeah, it's a p- pretty horrible way to go. And then a pretty horrible way to go again, in a way. Pop goes the, pop goes the weasel. Pop goes the William, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I like that. A pretty, yeah. We'll we'll, we'll have that. There. We'll coin that. Um, well, you can coin it. Yeah. it was your phrase. <laughs> your phrase. Um, no, it's it's it's. We'll we'll share that one. So, it's um yeah. So where where is he buried now? William. Yeah. So his. I know. I'm quickly going to Google it because I'm not quite sure where he is currently because I know his tomb was ransacked during the French Revolution. Okay. Um, which is which is really sad actually because so he was buried he in still, France. Just, yo, very much so. Yeah, okay. he is buried. Oh, I always forget where he's bloody buried. Um, Saint Etienne uh, in Cannes Can, in okay. Normandy. So not England at all. I was thinking nope. Westminster Abbey, but no, absolutely no. Not. Um, a lot of the early Plantagenets. So after him, um, Richard the First, so Richard the Lionheart, the English of the most English of English ever, even though he spoke no English and was French. Um, he was buried in France. Uh, I think uh, King John is buried in England, um, which is ironic because he's the one that nobody likes. But a lot of <laughs> early early Plantagenet kings and all of the Norman kings, uh, they're all in France. So they went home. Yeah, they went home, yeah. So they're all buried in um, like uh, Rouen and Fontevraud, um, all in sort of Normandy around around Cannes and places like that. Nice. Nice part of the world if no one's been. It's very nice. Um, yeah, very nice. Talking of, 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 of death, I suppose that leads us quite nicely on to Edward III. So he uh, obviously lived to a, a ripe old age at, at, at the time. Um, can you mm. tell us more about the circumstances of his death and, and, and what happened afterwards? Uh, yeah, so Edward did very well. He got to 69 years old, which uh, I would say is a pretty decent age to get to, especially in the 14th century. He lived through the Hundred Years' War where he fought, you know, he fought at Cressy, he fought at the Battle of Slois, uh, amongst loads of others. He fought the Scots. This, he got through the Black Death where his own kids were killed. And yet he got all the way through to 1377 where he, he eventually died of a stroke. Um, but he had been ill for a few years, like, like unfortunately, like the Black uh, Prince. Uh, they both died within like 12 months of each other, which was naff for the, for the country, for the, for the succession. Uh, just quickly on the, Black De- on the Black Prince's death, he was so well uh, like respected. Even in France, they held masses for his death, which just shows how much of a, 
just a purebred cheval knight that the Black Prince was. But yeah, Edward III, um, yeah, he left um, he left John of Gaunt, who was his um, who was his other son. He had several sons uh, and several daughters as well, but those are the two two most important. Um, so he left John of Gaunt in charge of government, who he was a pretty poor politician. Um, and he left him in charge, essentially, to rule in the name of his grandson, Richard II, um, which anybody that knows Richard II knows he was a pretty pants king. He was a tyrant. Um, he caused the peasants' revolt. But I, I think it's a lot to do with the fact that his grandfather and his dad all both died when he was so young. So we had no one to learn from other than John of Gorn, who was naff. Um, but yeah, the, the his kind of last kind of hurrah was the good parliament of 1376 so just before he died the um he was he was called uh, a lot of a lot of his um counselors at the time including his his mistress because his wife um philippa died in 1369 and he was heartbroken obviously and he essentially in his old age became very fond of a young girl called uh, alice perez who was a, a young girl who I, I think just probably gave him a little bit of comfort at the end of his life. But she was a, a seductress. She was a seducing him and you know, all this kind of, and she was a bad counsellor. And basically the good parliament was there to iron out all the kinks and just like, right, I'll give you, he gave parliament um, control over his finances. He, he introduced English um, as the law, as the, sorry, the language of the, of common plea which is super important because it allowed people of any stock to be represented, to represent themselves, to understand what the bloody hell they were being accused of. Whereas, because before it was French, obviously the high courts and the king's courts and all the, uh, all the nobles still spoke French pretty much 100% of the time. But this is where England's, English starts to become a much more important language. Um, obviously, it was his grandson, Henry IV, son of John of Gaunt, who was the first king to speak in English as a first language. Um, but Edward III, to me, is the father of the English nation and the English language. As much as other people contributed a lot, he is the kind of, he kind of birthing British, the Royal Navy at Slois. He, he made English as a language important again. He, he formed the kingdom to pretty much what it is today. And he, his death robbed England of an amazing king. So that's a huge turning point um, mm. with the, the the language and and what is spoken as a first language rather than a second language. Because from William the First, William the Conqueror, right the way yep. through to um, I believe it was Henry, you said um, their first language would not have been English. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, I would probably say that. All kings up until probably the 16th, probably even the 17th century, spoke fluent French, at least fluent French, English, Latin, probably a bit of Spanish, Italian. All these languages were spoke. But in terms of French and English, obviously pre-conquest, pre-Norman conquest, it was old English, so Anglo-Saxon, we'll call it. Then a Middle English-French hybrid emerged and then that's kind of the Geoffrey Chaucer Shakespearean English that we that we kind of associate the ye old English let's call it the kind of slapstick 
um, the lady doth protest too much, all those kind of things. That's the <laughs> the English that emerges after after Edward, who takes a lot. A, it's a big thing in the 1360s to make 1360s and 70s in the parliaments of those to make English a recognised language. It would be like the Queen saying, "Right, Cornish and Welsh are now mandatory languages for people to learn." Because those languages, Cornish and Welsh and things like that, those are the the shadows of Old English, the old, old English, like Anglo-Saxon English, which sadly we are, we are going to lose. Absolutely. And the, the obviously, as we know, language is, is ever evolving. So I believe mm. the um, Oxford Dictionary, they put out a new word every year or a new uh, a, a selection of new words. So even... Um, I mean, I'm going back to sort of my area of expertise. So, sort of Victorian times to the to the early 20th century, absolutely nobody talks in the same tone and dialect as we do now. Absolutely, it's it's, it's fascinating. Language is fascinating, um, but uh, yeah, the English language is especially fascinating. I would say because it's made up of so many different. Languages like we've touched on before, the, the massive European influence in England and English culture and language and food and everything. It's, we're a, it's a German, Scandinavian, French language that's got words from all kinds of places and, and, and all sorts of things. Like if you ever go to, to the Netherlands, like Amsterdam, which is a great place, I fully recommend it. You'll hear words like I remember being in, a, in, the, in the train station in, in Amsterdam hearing full Dutch over the tannoy. And then there was, I don't know what, what, it were, what word it was, but it was like, Dutch, 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 roundabout. Dutch, Dutch, Dutch. And I was like, wait, what? And the, the Dutch language is, is, again, it's another German-French kind of hybrid. And it's just England. It's the same, it's English, but it's Dutch, but it's French, but it's, it's great. It's amazing. I, I, I totally agree. So I've, I've been lucky enough to, to travel around Europe and, and we're, very, we're very close to Europe, as we've, we've spoken about earlier. Um, and actually, you can you can get by because a lot of words that we use are very similar. So mm. it doesn't matter if you're in Germany or France or um, uh, the Netherlands. Um, you you can get by with with speaking completely different languages because they are so similar. Or yeah. there is a there is a mirror image of of, of kind of what you want to say. Um, and it's actually quite scary. We think we're so different, but actually we're very similar. We're very similar, and I think it's it's great. Obviously, we we were talking earlier um, about about the amalgamation of cultures and the melting pot that is Europe. And England is a, and I think it's it was a wicked, it's a mongrel nation, and it's great. And the idea of, of Britishness and Englishness, I want to personally, I want to change the idea of being proud to be British. I want to, I want to, I am proud to be British because I'm proud to be from this wonderfully complex and um, a mess of a country that's just languages and food and cultures and cuisine. Everything is just European and it's from, well, like I said, we're, we're Norwegian, Swedish and French and from the low countries. It's, it's amazing. It's great. I think because we've got the we've got the sea sort of surrounding us, I mm. think that kind of there's a physical barrier there, isn't there, as well as a um a mentality barrier possibly. Um whereas if, when you're in other European countries you can you can sort of go from Germany into France and 
and, and not even know really <laughs> yeah no yeah you can i think we we mentioned it earlier about the channel being an important barrier i think for in in early english history sort of the the, the 12th and 13th century so just before edward iii um it was a highway it was a road that connected two parts of the same world and it would be nice to have that back in a way as much as i like and i'm sure a lot of people like their englishness it's something I'm I'm very fond of, but I am also a proud European, and I don't want to isolate myself from the wicked world that is Europe. Absolutely, I agree, and I have learned so much. I feel like I need to process everything that you told me because <laughs> you're a fountain of knowledge. Thank you, um, I really appreciate that. It's, it's been uh, I've loved it. I've loved doing this, and and hope, like you said, hopefully people have learned things, and uh, and and if not. Listen to it again and you might. Um, <laughs> or you could follow Chris on his um, pages that are... You could. At, go on, plug again. <laughs> I'm just going to double check my Instagram handle because I don't know which side the the underscore is on. It's Give on me the two end. Seconds. It is on the end. So it's Chris Riley underscore, all one word. Um, you can follow me there where I post all of my article links. I do a daily on this day um, with a little quiz question. Um, so Exploding William was the Christmas Day one because he was coronated on Christmas Day 1066. Um, yeah, but I'd massively appreciate if people would check out the website. So the thehistorycorner.org dot um, com was taken um it's a wonderful place i would hope you enjoy it there's loads of stuff to learn people can contribute um yeah just um send me a message on instagram if you want to talk about history if you want to contribute to the website if you want to tell me everything i've just said is wrong they don't call it the english channel in french uh, <laughs> anything i am i am all ears i am i am open i'm an open book i think that is a perfect perfect place to um to sign off there i've i thoroughly enjoyed it thank you so much for coming on and no, thanks um, for having me man it's been i great. hope i've not been completely useless in this episode um but this was <laughs> this was your time to shine and educate one fellow historian to another so um, you did it perfectly for keeping me on some level of track because i really like to go off on tangents as um, as do I, but I think we did okay. We did okay. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully Chris and I will work together again. Um maybe I will I will lead the next one and we can we can talk um more about the other side of Edward the Third going forward rather than Absolutely. Backwards. I would um, love that. That'd be amazing. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much and um yeah, as I said, go check Chris out. Um it's amazing stuff and amazing content. Thank you. That's, uh, yeah, really enjoyed that. Thanks for having me. Cheers.